This is a significant date in the history of our church. Does anybody know why? Anybody at all? Today is the third anniversary of the launch of our three-year campaign, Vision Next, uh, which was for the intent of, originally, of having enough money by this date to think about putting a down payment on something. And uh, and God moved in a surprising way very early in the game, and here we are uh, in this building. And how exciting that uh, we're here, we're in. There's still a lot of work to do on this place. And so um, you can keep giving to Vision Next if you like, but Dave Block told me that as of today, um, there was... Our pledges were five hundred and thirteen thousand nine hundred and thirty dollars. Okay, five thirteen nine thirty received as of today five hundred and thirteen nine eighty. So we're fifty dollars over what was pledged. That's great news. So thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your generosity, and uh, let's keep pressing on together. Well, let's bow in prayer together. Again, Lord, would you now teach us, would, would you allow us to hear from you, open the eyes of our hearts and the, eye, and the ears of our souls that we would receive from you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this series, we have been seeking to answer the question, uh, what must we do as followers of Jesus Christ in the world today, both individually and as a believing community, to persevere in our faith in and obedience to Christ in the face of increasing opposition and potential persecution. Uh, This is the fifth in our series of messages. Um, And if you missed the first four, you can go to mylpcoli.com and uh, you can find all of our messages there and you can review the, the, the first four. In the first two messages, I I shared with you that there are two coming realities for which we as uh, Christ followers need to be prepared. Uh, The first is a soft totalitarianism in which every aspect of our lives will be controlled and our words censored, perhaps even our thoughts. The second is the imminent coming of Christ for the church And at the close of the second message, I indicated to you that there are three imperatives in light of those first two realities that we must take into consideration by way of preparation and readiness for both. The first of those imperatives, which we saw two weeks ago, is that we as Christians are going to have to make a conscious, willful choice to live our lives according to truth, to cultivate the discernment that's necessary, in order to recognize and then to consciously reject lies as they come our way. And that begins with knowing the truth, becoming a biblical Christian, living the truth, teaching the truth, and being ready if necessary to suffer for the truth. The second imperative that I suggested to you in which we saw last week is that we have to renew our commitment to our families and to cultivate our families as cells of resistance to the secularizing influence of an increasingly godless culture. Now, I'm not going to relitigate any of that this morning, 
But I would encourage you to go and uh, review those messages. And, and by the way, you don't have to agree with me about any of that. Um, but uh, you certainly uh, ought to be taking these things into consideration. But the third imperative that I believe is absolutely necessary for Christian perseverance is vital personal participation in a small group with other believers. And I've chosen as our text today a short passage, Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Will you please stand with me and let's read it together. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word. You may be seated. For over 2,000 years, Christians living under totalitarian and other oppressive regimes have understood the necessity of small communities within the church, part of the church, within the church. And we might remember that the Christian church was born under an oppressive regime. And as the church grew, Christians under the Roman Empire met in homes. Some of them are identified in Paul's letters. Here are just four examples, Romans 16, verses 3 and 5. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Greet also the church in their house. 1 Corinthians 16, 19, the same couple is going to be mentioned here. They've moved now to another city. And Paul says, Aquila and Prisca, which is short for Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Colossians chapter 4, verse 15, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Philemon 1, 1 to 2, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Fast forward to the 20th century, evangelicals in communist Russia learned and practiced this survival skill of house churches decades ago. I became familiar just recently with a Baptist pastor, Yuri Sipko, who became vice president of the World Baptist Alliance and also president of the Union of Evangelical Christians Baptists of Russia from 2002 to 2010. Yuri Sipko is now 70 years old. He recalls the world that he was born into under Stalin's merciless persecution of churches. And he wrote this, that the strongest strike was against the preachers and the pastors, first of all. They took the preachers and pastors to prison. Other men stood up and filled their shoes. Then they took their houses of prayer. And then at that point began the practice of small groups. People who lived close to one another would gather in small groups. There was no formal structure of pastors or deacons. They were just brothers and sisters who read the Bible together, prayed together, and sang. When they jailed my father, my mother was left alone. Several other sisters were left without husbands. We all got together. 
We found the Bible they had hidden. The women were reading the Bible to all of us. They were telling how people should live, what we had to hope for. They prayed together and cried. Memories from childhood. Those small groups continued the life of the Baptist Church in Russia for decades until Mikhail Gorbachev released the last evangelical prisoners of conscience. And Pastor Sipko added with regard to that, in 60 years of terror, they were unable to get rid of the faith. It was saved specifically in small groups. Small groups not only provided accountability, but they also gave believers a tangible connection to the larger body of Christ. This was so wonderful. This was true Christianity. You'll find Christians around the world today gathering to worship, to study the Bible, to encourage one another in the faith, meeting in dedicated church buildings, cathedrals to be sure, but also in houses, in office buildings, on boats, in buses, under trees, any place they can meet safely and securely. And I'd like you to consider with me from the passage we just read a number of observations. And the first is this, that vital participation in a small group only makes sense in light of the times. The writer of Hebrews says, you see the day drawing near. It's important to clarify, as I said three weeks ago, that that to say that the return of Jesus Christ for the church, the event that we refer to as the rapture of the church, is imminent, is neither to suggest nor to insist that it will happen immediately but rather to insist on the basis of God's word that each of us ought to live with the expectant realization that from God's perspective or the perspective of the New Testament writers, nothing stands in the way of it happening. There's nothing left on the prophetic calendar, the biblical prophetic calendar that has to happen before the rapture of the church. And one thing that we know for sure from the pages of the New Testament is that Christ followers from the time of Jesus' ascension into heaven and right down to the very present have lived with the expectation that it could take place at any moment. For example, in Romans 13, Paul wrote, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So if Paul was referring to the passage of time and the the nearness of their salvation in the first century, how much nearer is the coming of Jesus now in the 21st century, 2,000 years later? Secondly, vital participation in a small group will help you to persist in faithfulness to Jesus Christ, who himself is faithful under what many are anticipating as a coming totalitarianism here in the Western world, opposition to an act of persecution for our confession of faith in Christ may be tested. We know that the early church faced intense persecution by the Jews and the Romans 
especially intense under the emperors Nero and Diocletian. But but we tend to think that persecution kind of came to an end, that it kind of tapered off, especially when Constantine, the Roman emperor, declared Christianity to be the official religion of the empire. But the truth is that active persecution of Christians has continued unabated for over 2,000 years in various parts of the world. It's still happening today. Today, somewhere in the world, Christians will die for their faith. Christians will be persecuted for their faith. One notable example is the violent purge in China under Mao's cultural revolution in the 1960s. Uh, He purged all religion, including Christianity. And many, many Christians, even nominal Christians, marginal Christians, were tortured, sent to labor camps, and literally worked to death. But it was near the end of that cultural revolution that the house church movement sprang up in China. It began in rural areas. It saw massive rates of conversion to Christianity. And then it spread rapidly into the cities. And and it has continued to expand so that today scholars estimate that there are between 80 and 100 million Christians meeting in the underground church in China, which accounts for 8% of China's population, which is on the verge, or in fact already has eclipsed, the number of total members of the Communist Party. So what can we expect under a dictator like Xi Jinping? We can expect that the persecution will increase again in a very intense way because there are more Christians than communists today in China. There are churches in China today that are sanctioned by the communist government that are nothing more than centers for propaganda. And they're required to align their sermons and other teaching to socialist core values and to paste communist party slogans on their walls. But those who choose instead to attend the house churches and other other churches in the Christian underground run the constant risk of harassment, sometimes detention, sometimes being disappeared by the authorities. Xu Yanghai, a lay leader, has served a number of jail terms. He says official churches are, in fact, just political institutes. It is impossible for us, meaning those in the Christian underground, to leave Jesus and to follow the party. The writer of Hebrews urges us, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Without wavering means literally unbent, unbowed, unyielding, resolute, firm. When you are tempted to leave Jesus and to choose falsehood, whether to believe falsehood or to actively live it, having other Christ followers around you who know you, who love you, who are close enough to understand what's going on in your life, have the opportunity to speak 
truth to you, to help you not to bend, not to yield, but to hold fast to the hope in Christ that you have embraced and that you have confessed. Notice that last phrase of verse 23, that he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. We may know, we may affirm, we may even be able to articulate that Christ himself is faithful to us and to all of his promises to us. But I want to suggest to you this morning that it is only in choosing faithfulness to Christ that we actually experience the faithfulness of Christ. Let me repeat that. It is only in choosing faithfulness to Christ that we actually experience the faithfulness of Christ. Next, vital participation in a small group enables us to persist in faithfulness to one another, to one another. Notice verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good good works. You may be, as I am, very familiar with this passage. Uh, I don't remember not being familiar with this passage. I've been familiar with it for that long. And you may think it says what it means and means what it says, and for the most part, it does, that there are always challenges in biblical translation. And I want you to let you know that a literal translation of verse 24 reveals a twist. Here in the English Standard Version, what is being considered is how to stir up one another to love and good works. It causes us first to consider strategies and methods. There's nothing essentially wrong with that, but here's the twist. The writer isn't calling us in this verse to make strategies and methodologies our first consideration, but rather to make one another our first consideration. In fact, a more accurate translation might be, and let us consider one another towards stirring up to love and to good works. That's that's about a literal translation. Let us consider one another toward stirring up to love and to good works. You might say, well, aren't you just splitting hairs? Why is that important? Well, here's, here's why. The writer isn't calling us to a one-size-fits-all motivational program. I will never know best how to motivate you or anyone until I really know you. Not only that, I will never understand the kind of good works that God has uniquely wired you and gifted you to perform. That seems kind of important to me, doesn't it seem kind of important to you? Check out that two-word phrase, one another. In English grammar, that's called a reciprocal pronoun. Are you, are you impressed with that? Something I remember from, from English classes. Well, what does that mean? It, it means that the consideration being called for here is a reciprocal activity. It's not a one-way street. That is, there's a, a mutual responsibility to consider each other. And fulfilling that responsibility necessitates a reciprocal give and take. It means we need to invest time and effort in, in really getting to know and coming to understand each other. 
And it's in small groups that this kind of investment of time and attention has the greatest opportunity to take place. So then, when we are accomplishing that goal of considering one another, we will know better how to stir up one another to love and the kind of works that God uniquely intends for each of us. Listen to how the Apostle Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter 4. He wrote, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let me ask you this morning, is it okay that God works through me in ways that are different than the ways that he works through you? Is that all right? And is it okay that he works through you in ways that are different than the ways he works through me? Of course it is. Think of it this way. God designed you with a unique personality. Some personalities are more unique than others. But he designed you also with a unique temperament. He designed you with specific gifts and abilities all housed in a unique physical body. And the good works that God has designed for you to do are channeled and expressed through the fullness of all of that. Others receive the benefit, and God gets the glory. Now, don't miss what the writer says that we should do, which is to stir up one another. And we need to understand that what is actually being said so that we don't just digest a sweet, sanitized version of that. He's not talking about stirring each other up in the same kind of polite way that we might stir sugar into a cup of coffee or tea with your little pinky in the air. Let me give you some other angles on this word. One translation of the word means to jab one another which is why some translations render it spur one another, like a cowboy jabs his spurs into the side of a horse. From this angle, we could paraphrase it, stick it to one another. And another way to translate the word is to literally to irritate one another, which isn't hard, right? Or or to provoke one another. And all of that is for the purpose of motivating each other to engage in a life of love and good works. And the sense of it is that we aren't going to settle for inaction, for anything less than a lifestyle that is motivated by love and produces good works. And to that point, and at that point, it really needs to be be understood that as we jab, as we provoke, as we irritate and stick it to one another, We are cooperating with God 
toward the goal of seeing each other become all that Christ saved us for and all that he wants us to be, to do all that he saved us for and wants us to do. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I've always scratched my head a, a bit about that phrase, which God prepared beforehand. But I think it means that there is, there were things that when God first thought of me, he had in mind for me to do. There was a person he had in mind for me to be. There were relationships that he had intended for me to engage. There were gifts that he intended to invest in me to accomplish specific purposes in my lifetime, in this period of history that I occupy in these physical places that I occupy. Well, then don't miss what the writer adds onto the command to consider one another. Not neglecting, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. I'd like to share three simple observations about this. Two of them aren't in your sermon notes because I thought of them after we published the notes. But the first is that everything that the New Testament calls the church to be requires that we meet together, that we gather together, that we assemble in some way on a regular basis. And it would be easy to summarize these 11 words with eight other words. It would be the easiest thing to do this. Make sure you go to church on Sunday. But I want to say that if all you hear the writer urging you to do is to merely check a box by attending church, then you're entirely missing the point. Don't get me wrong. I I, I hope you'll come. makes my job a lot easier when there are people actually sitting in chairs. I hope you'll come. But that's not the fullness of what the writer is saying to us here. To meet together means literally to group together. The The word is actually the root word from, from which the word synagogue comes. It means to form a group, which implies identification with each other as a group. I, I know that I'm in a group with you. You're in a group with me. We're in this group together. There's a, there's a group identity. And that that grouping together is for an intentional purpose, which in addition to all of the other functions of the church, is to thoughtfully take one another into consideration. To provoke one another to love and good words, good works, and to carry out a, a ministry of encouragement in each other's lives. And if I'm casual, or I'm neglectful about this, then I'll never fulfill my responsibility to stir you up to love and good works because I won't know you well enough to do that, nor will I have a presence in your life to do that. Second, if I neglect to group together with you, 
then the writer is saying that I'm simply giving in to the prevailing ethos of our times. In fact, ethos is the word he uses there, which is translated habit. To the Greeks, ethos meant that to which you have become accustomed, that which becomes a habit. In our usage, ethos speaks to the characteristic spirit of our times, the attitudes of the prevailing culture. And with regard to participation in a local church or even church attendance, the prevailing ethos ranges from casual involvement to passive neglect to active avoidance, does it not? And people today feel a greater loyalty to their leisure activities and their local sports teams than to the church. To make a meaningful commitment to full participation in the life and mission of the local church is emerging now as a radical choice made by a shrinking minority of Americans. Third, to neglect Christian community. This is in your notes. Was understood by New Testament writers as abandonment or desertion. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. The very same word translated neglect in Hebrews 10.25 is used elsewhere for desertion. For example, 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul writes, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Same word. Same word. Later in that same chapter, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. All abandoned me. All ran away. So if you think that your choice to hold back from attending your local church or gathering with your small group is an inconsequential choice, then you're failing to recognize reality, failing to understand the essential role of the Christian community, failing to recognize the times in which we are living. You are simply caving to the prevailing ethos, which is anti-church, anti-Christ, anti-commitment. And the effect on the church is abandonment or desertion of people whom you need and who need you. Next, vital participation in a small group provides personal accountability to live in love. Again, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. See, there is in in the midst of all the jabbing and all the irritating, the element of accountability to love. The fundamental choice to join a small group today, whether it's a a small group that's part of your church or it's a house church or some small community of believers, the fundamental choice ought not primarily to be about anything less than a decision to enter into a relationship or rather a set of relationships with people whom you are choosing to love to the best of your ability and whom you will allow to love you in return. That love will be imperfect. You'll be hurt by the people whom you choose to love. They will be hurt by you. 
because we all can be prickly people, we're sinful people. Well, we are sinful people being made new in Christ, being conformed to his image. Anyone who chooses to love will be hurt. There is no other option. The Apostle Paul said that the goal of our instruction, that is, the goal of our discipleship, is love. Is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. Next, vital participation in a small group provides encouragement to live in truth. Encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You say, well, I don't see the word truth there. What, what's that? And again, we need to consider the word that the writer chose here. When we think of encouragement today, we're usually thinking of words. We're usually thinking of actions that tend to engender warm feelings that elicit comfort and courage to kind of keep on keeping on. And those things are are not absent from the Greek word used here, but again, they're not the whole story. The word literally means to come up alongside someone, to exhort them, to admonish them. What do those words mean? Well, first of all, exhort includes the strong urging, the jabbing, the prodding, the spurring that we talked about earlier for the purpose of motivating someone to do something. To admonish means to firmly warn someone, to reprimand someone. There is in that very word the sense of calling someone out, as we would put it today. Let's agree together that most of us, okay, all of us, are adverse to being called out. We don't like it. And yet it's an important part of life in the community of believers. And it's, it's an element of Christian discipleship that we cannot avoid, that we cannot reject. See, when you're in a thick fog of temptation, when you're in the dark of depression and discouragement, of persecution or conflict, the greatest gift another Christ follower can give you is the gift of encouragement to know the truth and to live in accordance with the truth. Intense temptation, just like intense persecution, creates a kind of vertigo where you don't know what's up and what's down. And at that moment, in that moment, in that time, in that experience. The greatest gift is that someone would tell you the truth and call you to live in accordance with the truth in spite of what you're thinking and feeling. One of the writers of Proverbs reminds us that a friend can hurt us in love, but an enemy can deceive us and even make us feel good about the deception. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians to let them know that truth-telling, motivated and tempered by love, ought to be a characteristic of life within the body of Christ. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. I could go on and on about this. Let Let me just wrap it up with this. 
vital participation in a small group is a personal choice. It's an act of the volition. Rod, Rod Dreher, in his book, Live Not by Lies, wrote that what the experience of the church under communism and a discerning read of the signs of the times today tell us is that all Christians of every church should start forming these cells, not simply to deepen its members' spiritual lives, but to train them in active resistance. I shared with you earlier in this series, and I'll, I'll just say it again. I I don't fully know what's coming any better than anybody else. But I've often thought about what is what is my responsibility as a pastor to the church that I serve to prepare them for persecution, to prepare them for suffering. This series is a part of the answer to that question. I don't want you to be surprised, as Peter said, by the fiery ordeal that comes upon you. I want you to be ready for it. There's a woman named Zofia Romashevska who is one of the true heroes of modern Poland. Together with her husband Zbigniew, she joined the fight for liberty and human rights clear back in the 1960s. She's an old woman now. They would hold dissident meetings in their apartment. When the communist government declared martial law in 1980, Zofia and Zbigniew went into hiding. Zofia was eventually arrested, but then received amnesty after several months of imprisonment. Zofia is among those who sees the danger of soft totalitarianism coming fast in the United States and in the Western world in general. And she urges young people to get off their phones and off the Internet and join together to build resistance. That's, that's an alarm that's telling me that I need to stop. Zofia wrote this, as I see it, this is the core, this is the essence of everything, forming these communities and networks of communities. The point is that the members of that community must be very supportive of one another, no matter what comes. No matter what comes. Zofia is, is echoing in part the words we have considered this morning. Let us hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In view of the increasingly extreme nature of our changing circumstances and in view of the extreme nearness of the coming of Christ, making an extreme commitment to Christ and to Christian community is not an extreme decision at all. It's the most reasonable 
and logical decision of all. It's the most practical decision of all. And I pray that you will make that decision if you've not already. And if you have made that commitment, let me suggest to you that the ways that we have come to approach small groups in the evangelical church in the United States is wholly inadequate for what is to come. A small group, a life group, a community group, whatever whatever your church calls it, we call them life groups here. are not merely an optional practice for committed Christians. They're not just a sideline. They're not just entertainment. They're not just one option among many lifestyle choices. May we be a church truly and fully prepared to persevere in our faith in and obedience to Christ and in our commitments to each other in the face of increasing opposition, and if and when it comes, potential persecution for the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.